want something to go better in nature, nature is fine without us. And we're the ones that cause the damage to it when we do. So I knew that if we wanted to help the environment, it was going to need to start with the people. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Save the Wild podcast, brought to you by Nature's Path and Kid Cereals. I'm your host, Brad Nahill, president of Sea Turtles, and you just heard from this episode's guest, Katerina Audley of Whales of Guerrero. For this episode, we're moving back into the water to find out how researching whales can support and empower coastal communities in developing countries like Mexico. Katerina has a very inspiring story, and I'm excited to share it with you today. First will be my commentary about climate change, which is at the forefront of our minds here on the West Coast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform to this podcast. That helps more people find it so we can reach a bigger audience. We really appreciate your help. This commentary will be about climate change, which is an issue that I've been involved with since early in my career when I worked for an organization called Ozone Action in Washington, D.C. Back then, Al Gore was running for president, and despite his lifelong leadership on the issue, he was not pushing climate change in his campaign. The impacts we were expecting were all pretty far into the future, so more immediate issues like the economy were the focus then. His loss ushered in what, at the time, was probably the most anti-environmental presidency the country had ever seen, with the possible exception of Ronald Reagan. At least until this current administration, that is. No other president has done more to set back the fight against global warming. He regularly claims it is a Chinese hoax, and his administration has dropped out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and has attempted to dismantle decades of laws and policies to fight pollution. Well, the impacts could not be more clear than they are right now. Our co-founder of Sea Turtles, Dr. Wallace J. Nichols, lost his home to the California fires a few weeks ago. And where I sit right now in Portland, Oregon, the fires are about 10 miles away, and the smoke has made our air the worst in the world. This hurricane season is turning into one of the worst in decades, all while we continue through a pandemic clearly made worse than it had to be because we have an anti-science president. In the sea turtle world, researchers have been documenting the changing climate and its impact on these animals for decades. We're seeing intense erosion due to sea level rise that is wiping out turtle nesting beaches. Rising sand temperatures is resulting in some nesting beaches producing nearly all female hatchlings since their sex is dependent on the nest temperature. Coral bleaching damages important turtle habitat and so on. You know, when we tend to think of climate change, you know, we think more about polar bears, animals like that, but sea turtles are one of the key indicators for this issue. So how do we solve this problem? Individual efforts are great. I've had solar panels on my home for years and recently bought an electric car, which I love and will never go back to gasoline. But the pandemic has clearly shown that even if everyone stayed home and drove a lot less, emissions still remain high. The best way to solve this problem is at the national and international level by electing leaders who take science seriously and whose plans meet the scale of what we are facing. Whether it's the upcoming presidential election, Senate and House races, or local races, vote science this November. Our lives literally depend on it. Katerina Audley is founder and director of Whales of Guerrero. 
She has participated in whale research projects around the world since 1997 and has worked extensively with the marine mammal community. She has been a travel writer and photographer since 1995 and is a National Geographic explorer. Katerina and I are here together in Portland, Oregon, our first in-person interview. Katerina, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's so exciting to get to do an actual in-person meeting with someone. It's been, what, six or seven months? (laughs) At least. It feels like several lifetimes. It sure does. Yeah. You and I both have something in common, you know, in our work in the wildlife conservation field that we didn't take conventional paths into this field. Neither of us are trained biologists. Can you tell me how you got started studying whales in Mexico? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm a big advocate for non-scientists getting involved in conservation for some reasons. Um, I'm very into science, but I feel that being a non-scientist, non-traditional entry person has given us some advantages. So my background is I, I have a very eclectic background. I've been a travel writer and I've been a museum worker and I've been a professional fisherman and all sorts of other things. I've started lots of businesses. And what the common thread has been for me over my professional career, which has been about uh, 35 years now, is that I've always been into connecting people more deeply with the world around them in order to inspire and motivate them to care. And so that's been the common thread in all of the work that I've done. So the work that I do in Mexico, which is connecting people with nature through science to kickstart conservation, started, first of all, through a love of Mexico. So I'd been working in this really cool science museum in San Francisco called the Exploratorium which is the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception, for about five years when I went on vacation and kind of a sabbatical uh, to explore. And I hadn't ever been to Mexico. And when I got there, I just landed and felt like it was my place. Uh, I'm a fisherman as well. And I've been a commercial fisherman and I've got fish fever in my blood. And so when I got there, I noticed that there this was the fishiest place I'd ever been. It was, there were big fish in every wave, like every fourth wave, you'd see a big fish and bait balls were running the shores and dolphins behind them every day. And you could go out and you could catch red snappers or watch nangos with a hand line. You could catch enough for dinner and a couple to sell for the fishermen you were with just like that. So I really fell in love with the place uh, called Barre de Potosí, which is in the state of Guerrero. And that's just south of Zihuatanejo and Ixtapa first. So years later, I met my husband here in Portland. And when we got married 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to get married down there. And so I'd been going there for all of this time. And I noticed that the fishing had declined. And my friends, the locals had become my friends that I'd gone back to visit years and years uh, in a row we're really suffering. And I had this wedding and 80 people came from around the world. And I saw that my friends buying beer and guacamole and hanging out basically for a week allowed my friends in the village to be able to buy school supplies and uh, fix their roofs and pay off some debts. So that was the best wedding present ever. And that got me inspired to want to do more for this community. 
So I've also been a whale person for a really long time. I don't have a degree in whales or science, but I do have a fascination with whales that goes back over 25 years or so. And it started when I was living in San Francisco, right by the Golden Gate Bridge by Baker Beach. And I started dreaming and thinking about whales. I became fascinated by them. So I started saving up my museum workers' wages to get to go out and find whales. So I would travel out to the Farallon Islands and go for eight hours some days to get out and maybe see a glimpse of a whale. And that got this hunger in me lit up to go spend more time with whales. I started getting envious of whale scientists. I felt like they were the luckiest people in the world that they got to be around whales. And so I started volunteering for them and writing stories about them as a travel writer to get to spend time around them on their boats. So that gave me this chance to be around whales a lot and whale science and see how people were studying whales in places around the world. So coming back to Mexico, I'd seen this place go from being this incredibly vibrant natural wonderland to a place that was really in trouble. And I knew that there were whales and dolphins there because when I went out fishing in the wintertime, I would see them. And I thought, well, we're not doing anything with whale ecotourism here. And I've seen how ecotourism can really create a whole economy for a place, but it can really mess things up for the whales too. And I found out that no one had ever studied the whales there before. And we just didn't have any idea what was there. So I decided to start this program with the locals and said to them, basically, hey, guys, you know me, and I know you, and I'm worried about you. I think your place is really special, and I really, really care about you. And I did you know that one thing you can do is you can take people whale watching, and they'll pay money? And so we began to explore this idea of doing a study together first to see what was there. And then from there, see if we could do some sort of ecotourism work uh, that would be a way where we could take care of nature and learn about nature together and be, become informed about what was out there. And then the locals could benefit financially as well. On previous podcasts, I've spoken about uh, colonial science, which is where researchers from developed countries go to developing countries to do research without investing in the local communities. Your organization has avoided doing that and has really worked to empower the community. Um, can you tell me how you went through that process and, and how you um, work with the community to, to study the whales and a whole bunch of other things? These are my top 10 tips for how to connect people with nature in a way that lasts. The first one is prioritize human connections over stated objectives. And what I mean by that is conservation's messy and nonlinear, and that's hard for scientists at times to deal with. Put the conservation results over the scientific results that you're trying to get. Second thing I've got is focus on the right people and ask locals who they are. And so when you show up in a place, there's always going to be the first sort of line of people that come up to you. And they're often, they're really usually not the people that you want to work with. So 
my assumption when I started this work, for example, was that I would be working with like old fishermen and I'm a fisherman and I love working with old fishermen. So I thought that would be a lot of fun. But when I told the community, I'm worried about you. And I was thinking maybe we could do something together where we could study whales and see if we could develop some ecotourism. The locals said, don't worry about the old men. Like you can't change them. If you want to make any kind of changes, you need to work with young men in the village who are just starting out, and you need to focus on the women and the kids. And so my project became this really kid-intensive education-focused organization, and we also do a ton of programs with women, and we hire young men to work on our team. We do, of course, work with the old men because I'm not like going to just say, oh, you're beyond help but to really figure out who in the village are the people that people listen to and also which demographic is best. Uh, the locals will tell you. The next one I've got is keep a pot of coffee on and cold beer and mineral water and tasty snacks in your fridge. So food creates friendships and friendships create trust. And when you've got that trust, then when it comes time to have to make a leap of faith or do a scary decision to you've got that trust that you've already built up. And so these meetings and things where we have a podium or a, a big circle and we're doing something, we all the decisions get made before the meeting. They get they happen over that beer that you had sitting in the hammock with somebody much more than they happen in that conference room. So it's about remembering that conservation is not about the animals you're trying to save. It's about the people and the relationships you need to build along the way. The fourth tip I've got is work hard to integrate yourself. So live in the community and be hosted by families. Don't live in a clump of scientists altogether. If you do that, you'll get really bonded as a team and you'll save a lot of money. But long term, it's going to be a better value for you to live in the community. Uh, also, eat out and hire local people and get involved. Go to the parties and dance and eat and laugh together. Fifth thing is strive for compassion and humility. So listen more than you talk and assume you don't understand, but try continuously to understand. I, I seem to have this conversation with people a lot in the village where I say, listen, I don't know what it's like to be you. I don't know what it's like to be from here. I know I speak Spanish and I've been coming here for more than 25 years, but I can't imagine what it's like to be in your shoes. And so tell me what your experience is like. And that allows people to really feel heard. And it allows me to have opportunities for insight that I wouldn't have had otherwise. My next one is to be inclusive. So invite everyone to come to all of your programs and make it possible for people to attend by having your program fit with the timing of the community. For example, where I live in Mexico, there's a Jehovah's Witness community and there's a Catholic community. So that means that Thursdays and Saturdays and Sundays and Fridays aren't really very good days to have community meetings. And also don't try and have a meeting when there's a birthday party happening because everyone's going to be at the birthday party instead. So ask the people when you want to have a meeting and make it work with everybody else's time. Be collaborative. So be available to work with everyone, especially at first. And there's always going to be people that you don't really want to work with, but you've got to be available to work with everybody and give credit. So we all know what it feels like when we've 
worked really hard and then no, and then we don't get that credit at the end. And it just doesn't cost very much at all to make sure to give credit to everybody. Uh, partner with other research and conservation groups. So I share my data with 45 different research groups and there's no way we could do all of the research and the conservation and the education and the ecotourism and community development work on our own but there's lots of really great conservation and research groups that are out there. And so sharing that data and making it public has helped us a lot. Um, so in terms of the going back to the being collaborative, there's always going to be some people who don't like you and don't trust you. And so my success has come from listening to those people and being available, even just inviting them again and again to activities. But I still, I don't spend too much time on them. And I know that there are always going to be people who don't want to work with us, but just continuously being available to listen to everybody. Next one is be honest, transparent, and accessible. So in Mexico, people ask like, where's your money come from? Well, tell them, tell them where your money comes from and tell them about your life and how you're able to be there. And I was having a really hard time my first year. I remember I was just, I was, I didn't have a team yet. It was just me. And I was so tired. And someone said to me who was a foreigner, don't let them see you having a hard time. That's going to make them lose respect for you. <laughs> and I disagreed. And I, told people when I was having a hard time. And I'm not talking about stomping around the village, having a temper tantrum or anything like that. But I found that by sharing with local people when we're having a hard time, oh man, I don't know if we're going to have enough funding or we, we tried this and it didn't work. And also we made a breakthrough. We discovered something, this thing happened and we're so excited about it. Um, that's been a big thing to be very transparent and accessible. And the other thing is to be ready with an explanation on why your work matters. So they ask, why are you here? Be ready to explain your work in a way that explains how your work will benefit the community. And if your work will not benefit the community, chances are your work might not be very important. So next one is show up on time, be consistent. So it's a simple thing. It's that how you do anything is how you do everything, but integrity really is everything. And so I found that I would show up on time and say, I'm going to be here the first years, for example. And I always, locals come on our boats. All the kids come, the women come. The first year, it was a big draw on our research project for fishermen to be able to come and listen to the whale because they didn't know that it was the whales singing and some of them were spear fishermen and they would feel a little bit afraid when they would be out swimming, uh, looking for fish at night and they would hear whales singing and it was kind of spooky for them. And so they were fascinated about getting on the boat with the hydrophone and being able to listen to the whales sing with us. And we would sit there on the boat and listen to the whales and they would shoot questions and we would just sort of talk about stuff. But sometimes I would invite locals to come on the boat and I would say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to do a safe whale watch training program where we like work with seven or eight communities all up and down the coast. And no one came sometimes, but then one day I didn't show up because I thought, oh, no one's going to come. And I said it's every Thursday at nine o'clock, but no one's going to come. And something had happened. So I couldn't go at Thursday at nine o'clock. So I did something else. And a guy showed up to do it. And that made him lose respect for the organization and the project. 
and it's been a long time and we've gotten back into a good place, but it's integrity really is everything. And so a lot of it is about just showing up on time and being consistent over and over and over again. And then finally, I think the biggest one is assume noble intent. And what I mean by that is believe in the goodness of people. And remember that only a tiny percentage of people want to hurt the planet or do the wrong thing. Most people want to do the right thing and really do enjoy helping. So set the people up where you live and work to be the heroes of the ocean and the champions of nature and make it worth their while. Many people have choices um, that they have to make and they make the choices that they do either because they don't know any better or they don't have the ability to choose differently. And so just being aware that most people are good when we start. And then if, because if you start from a place of judgment, then you've probably already lost. So that's the big one for me really is just believing in the goodness of people and setting them up to be the champions and then reflecting that back when they do something great. So we do that through our whale adoption program, for example, when local people come and they help out with something, like a local guy might go and untangle a turtle that's been caught in a net and then he'll come back and all the kids will crowd around him and here. And this is a place where people used to go out and eat turtle meat and eggs. And now the guys who are the real heroes are the ones that are untangling the turtle if it gets caught. And the kids love to hear these champion stories. So this guy might be someone that during our annual whale adoption ceremony, we would gift him a whale meaning he gets to name this whale. And when we see that whale again, because we know them by their tails, they come back this to the same place and we get to see them a year in, year out, or we can tell them, oh, we saw your whale. And so this guy gets to be a champion because he helped something with nature. He got to win a whale and then he became something like a hero. So now he's got this certificate on his wall that's got a picture of his whale and he and his whole family are out there looking for the whale that they've named. And so they have a bitter connection, but it all starts with setting that person up to be a champion of the environment and to see that hero in them. So let's talk about the whales a little bit. What whales are you studying there and what has the research revealed about them that was previously unknown? Well, uh, so the whales that we study are humpback whales. And when we started out, I was really surprised that there had not been any studies of humpback whales in that area because I came from the Bay Area and the West Coast and the U.S. and thought that basically every whale had been studied and that there was a scientist assigned to each of them. And so when we started out, the Mexican scientists who became advisors on our project all just said, oh, don't go to Guerrero. It's full of danger and notorious for its corruption and poverty, and it's just going to be impossible for you there. So uh, I wouldn't work there. And But I mean, I didn't have that experience because I had these friends in the village. So went and did the whale study. And so it was this black hole where we knew that there were humpback whales there. And we'd seen them there in January and February, or I had. And we didn't know if they were coming from the south or if they were coming from the north, so uh, which population they were coming from. And we didn't know if this was just like a migratory corridor for them or if this was a place that was an actual destination for the whales. So we ran a study for seven years and we found out that these whales are part of an endangered population segment that are 
apart. They're called the Central America Distinct Population Segment. And the thing that we've discovered is that a lot of the whales that come from Southern California, where they feed, go down just to Guerrero. They don't go all the way down to Central America to like Nicaragua and Panama. They just, they stop in Guerrero and they calve and they nurse. And we watch the babies get big. They go from being just these tiny little things with bent dorsal fins and fetal folds from being folded up inside their moms and being carried around on their mom's head to being these bigger animals that are a third the size of their moms and are jumping around and getting strong before they head north. And it's also an important courting ground. And so we hear the whales singing down there and uh, we see big competitive groups of animals chasing each other. And we see uh, male and female whales also chasing uh, during these courting pursuits. So some of the things that we've discovered are that the moms in our area, they stay there. So when you go to a place like Puerto Vallarta or to um, Hawaii, you will only see one female whale maybe once. And we don't have the big density of whales like you do in Puerto Vallarta or Hawaii. Like if you go out whale watching, you might see two or three whales in a day. You won't see hundreds of them. But you will get to know the individual whales because uh, because of that, not as much density and because there's not very much boat traffic, the whales are really mellow. And so the moms just sleep in the surf and the calves just rest and nurse. And so we put our drone up and we get to see these calves uh, just nursing by their moms for hours while the moms just basically snoozing. And um, the males are very interesting and different where we are as well, because in other places when males, one thing our captains actually discovered, not us, was that the male humpback whales and only male humpback whales sing. Most whales in Hawaii and in Puerto Vallarta, they'll sing and then they'll stop singing and come up to breathe and go back down. And so one of our boat captains, Arturo, who's been working with us for seven years now, and he's really become like the biggest expert on humpback whales in the whole state uh, because of the amount of time that he spent on the water studying them. Uh, he just went out there one day and it was this beautiful, clear, calm day where you could see down and you could see far and there was no wind. So if you saw a blow, you were going to see a blow if you were looking. And so there was a whale singing so loud that it, you could hear it without the hydrophone, which is the underwater microphone, with the boat turned off. You could just hear it singing through the boat. And Arturo said, I am going to find out if this whale is going to stop singing or not, because I don't think they stopped singing, as we'd heard them singing for like an hour at a time with no stop. And so Arturo stayed out there with our crew and systematically tested that this whale did not stop singing by having the hydrophone down and listening to it and watching it come up and breathe and go down and come up and breathe and go down. And so he used the scientific method to test the hypothesis that the whales don't stop singing when they come up to breathe in Guerrero and he came back and he was just so triumphant with this information. And it was so exciting for me to see this captain who's got like a seventh grade level of education, but he's a really good scientist. He's very rigorous and methodical and a dedicated patient guy uh, solve this mystery about the whale. So that's another thing. Another 
thing that we've discovered is we have these cool dolphins called rough-toothed dolphins. And usually rough-toothed dolphins are an offshore animal, but they're not where we are. And so we get to see this kind of rare, super, super smart dolphin. They're like the border collies of the dolphin world almost every day when we go out. And the whales and the rough-toothed dolphins have all kinds of fascinating interaction rituals. And also the rough-toothed dolphins seem to be studying us as intently as we are studying them. So the rough-toothed dolphins will come up to our boat and they'll look at us and sometimes we'll whistle, they'll whistle back. Sometimes they'll bring a fish um, and they get really interested in the whale. So we've been able to capture very interesting videos of the rough-toothed dolphins interacting with each other and with the whales. And so that's uh, helped us to break new ground about this other species. Um, so that's just part of it. And so, yeah, there's, in addition to the whales, there's this, it's this incredible place for turtles and rays and dolphins and birds. And so there's so much to discover there. And we always have this giant bucket list of things that we want to discover, but basically every time we go out, we learn something new. So our organizations work together a bit. Um, we we collaborate on some trips to go visit uh, Barra de Potosi and to study the whales. What is it like for a traveler to come to this community and go on one of these trips with you? Barra de Potosi is a pretty neat place because it's the kind of feeling where a lot of the time you have to fly on a plane and then you get off the plane and then you get in a van or a bus and you drive for about an hour or two to through some jungle roads to get to this special little spot. And the thing that's really nice about where we are is you can jump on a plane if you're coming from the West Coast in the morning and land in uh, the Zihuatanejo Airport. And then 15 minutes later, you're at this beach which is at the end of the road from where the airport is. And that's where this village is. And so the village is about a 600 person fishing village. It's a tic-tac-toe. So it's just three streets by three streets. And there's 1,560 species and counting. So it's just, as I said, a nature lover's wonderland. There's a beautiful lagoon behind us that's full of hundreds of birds. There's uh, 275 birds is the average number counted during the Christmas bird count. So there's roseate spoonbills and uh, all kinds of gulls and pelicans and frigate birds and you name it. There's uh, incredible egrets and herons. So we've got this great birding back in the lagoon. And then the lagoon opens out to the sea and the village is right there where the village, uh, where the lagoon and the sea meet. So you go out to sea and there's these big, beautiful white rocks where there's more nesting birds. And along the way, there are 12 different species of marine mammals that we found, including these really neat rough-toothed dolphins. There's four, at least, species of sea turtles. And uh, there's a cool turtle camp up the road. And for me, it's all about the people as much as it is about the nature. And so what's been going on this year, while basically tourism's been shut and the village has been closed, because of COVID is the women have been painting murals of nature on the outsides of their homes. And so now it's becoming an art village as well. And so I'm getting pictures and updates every day and it's just beautiful. So when we are able to go back there again, we're going to see there are about 13 
beautiful murals of coral reefs and birds and turtles and all of the animals that live in the area are now on the outsides of people's homes as well. So it's a pretty sweet place and the locals are lovely people and the women have been doing these cooking classes lately and that's been a big hit. And as wonderful as the nature is, a lot of the people that come on our trips find that their favorite part is getting to go inside someone's home and learn to make handmade tortillas and cook with a family and get to know them and see what it's like for three generations to live in a little house and have the happy experience of cooking something together. So this has been a difficult time for communities around the world. And I know that Bada de Potosi is no different. I know your organization has helped to raise some funds to help people in the community. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How How is the community doing through this pandemic? The community is doing amazing, I have to say. it's. I feel like one of the reasons we existed was, we came into existence was to be able to help to be a kind of bridge between foreigners and the community because when the community had to close because of COVID, they missed their Semana Santa, which is their spring break, which is a really important time for tourism for them. And they, uh, we started to do an emergency food raising campaign that turned into a food and health campaign for people. And we quickly raised enough money to feed the whole village for all the way through the end of December. And so fortunately, now we've raised enough funds for the community to be fed and to put up a safety filter and the community organized. They made a health and safety committee of people and went and found a good medical expert to give them the most up-to-date advice on what to do and strategy and find out what's really the best way to sanitize and what are the measures they need to take uh, seriously. And that combined with us having provided food for the locals made it so that they were able to close themselves entirely while COVID raged through the surrounding area. And so the hospitals reached capacity in Zihuatanejo and Ixtapa, and it got really scary all around. But the community, there was not a single case of COVID. And um, that was as a result of the funds that we raised that allowed people to stay closed. And also the people that formed the health and safety committee uh, working meaningfully together. And so we've done all of this community organization and community development work. And I often say we're like a whale project that's not really about the whales. That's just the conversation point. Because we've been having these strategic planning meetings and vision meetings and doing survey work, but it's always locals who are conducting the survey work and locals who are learning how to map and chart and graph what responses are and make decisions following these other ways of using these systematic scientific processes to figure out how to make decisions. And they took these ideas and they applied them on their own to organizing the community. And so when the community decided half of the people wanted to open, because you need more than just food to survive and they needed money, and then half of the community didn't want to open because they were so frightened, they took a survey and they went around and they asked, well, house by house, who wants to open, who wants to close? And then they gave their results back to the community and said, well, 76% of you want to stay closed. And so that's what the survey says. So that's what we're going to do. And the community felt good with that, having that kind of data and having 
collected that response in a systematic way. So that made me really happy to see that they were applying some of the things that we did on their own. And um, we've also had some stranded dolphins happen this uh, summer while I have been gone. And uh, the two Mexican scientists on our team both haven't been able to be there either. And the community has responded really quickly and in an organized way to it. So we've got these really good networks in place. And by feeding all of this positive organizational energy into the community, we're watching it come back and things are going okay. You've mentioned how Barra de Potosí was when you first arrived there. What is it like now? What changes have you seen since your organization has been working in collaboration with the community? Well, there's there's a lot. It's a it's really feels different than it did uh, when we started our work back in 2013. I think the first thing that people started noticing was the garbage or the lack of it. And so there's been a problem with people coming to the beach and leaving garbage from outside and also it washing up on the ocean and uh, onto the sea and getting caught up in the mangroves. And now you have to really look to find garbage in the community. And it used to be very, very different than that. And it started with uh, our community, our organization, we used to do beach cleanups and we would like charge the kids a piece of garbage to come into a workshop and that kind of thing. And the kids would sort of toss their candy wrappers outside of the library before coming in. And now to throw garbage is a bit of a shameful or a hidden thing if you're going to toss garbage at all. And the community is doing their own beach cleanups. And so it's very heartening to see people going after a big weekend or something like that, working together, and they've made signs about garbage. And so the whole culture around garbage has really changed. A big one for me is that one of the kids in the village is now going to school to become a biologist. And so no one in the village has graduated from college yet. But our first kid who's now in college is going to come out and be a graduated biologist in uh, three years now. And so science is really like the cool thing because we've had these very cool scientists who are young Mexicans who are engaging and always up for talking with people about what they're seeing around. So they clearly have the best life. And the dads that are doing eco tours are also the ones that are getting a lot of attention and in the media and people look up to them and admire them. And so many of the kids in the village now want to be a scientist when they grow up, or they want to be a, a tour guide of some sort that's an eco tour guide. So that's been really neat. Uh, another thing that we're seeing is that we've got 75 local guides that are not just from Barra de Potosí. And so these are all guides that have are fishermen who have become Safe Whale Watch training guides. We run a two-day Safe Whale Watch training program every year, and it started with just me on a boat, and now it's become this whole formal thing. And our area has become, as of 2019, a federally recognized whale watch zone. So now the captains actually have to take this safe whale watch training and they get this special flag that says that they've done this, this training and then they're allowed to go out and go whale watching and get up to 80 meters close to a whale for up to 30 minutes. And if you're not certified, you have to stay 240 meters away. But these guides, the thing that is amazing to me is we form a WhatsApp network and 
when we're out there, when a guide sees a whale, they let each other know that there's a whale out there. And instead of all of them bombing up to the same whale, because we just don't have that density to support multiple boats around, they're very engaged and invested in having only no more than two boats by that whale, not spending more than 30 minutes with it. And they're being very careful and they go and help non-certified guides or like people who are just pleasure cruisers or fishing guides who are out there and there happens to be a whale around, they go out and they hand out these brochures that we make for them to the non-certified guides and invite them to come and do the training and become a part of the group. So essentially you've got a group of 75 captains who are out there being champions for the whales and for nature and are putting the whales first. And so we talk about when the whales win, everyone wins and how a relaxed whale is the best thing. And for me, my favorite thing, I love it when a humpback breaches. I love it when they tail slap, of course, but my very favorite thing to see is a whale that's snoozing by the boat. Like that's just the ultimate compliment as if it's that calm. And so when we've been out with captains and doing a training program, one day we were out there and there was a mom calf pair in front of Barra de Potosi and we were doing our, our course and an uncertified boat came by the whale and we were practicing our distance. So getting a sense of what 80 meters was from this whale and because it's hard to tell on the water how far things are. And another boat came by the whale and we watched the whale go down and go away. And so we all got to have this experience of the whale changing the behavior together. And that really got these guys committed to taking care of nature um, in this group and go up. See, like if we had just stayed back from the whale and not gone up closer, closer, closer to it, the whale could have relaxed and the tourists could have had a better time on our boat. So having this very self-monitoring group of captains who it's the cool thing to have that flag. And um, they're also making the money because we do a lot of promoting of them. And, and so like with the kids who it's the cool thing to be a person that takes care of nature and science is cool and nature is cool. The whale watch captains that have been doing this training, the cool thing is to have this flag and be the guy that's good with the whales, not the one that finds the whales and gets the closest to the whales, but the one that the whales actually seem to relax around. So governments are going to come and go and the government federally has now recognized our area as a safe whale watch training area where you're allowed to go get your training and then go whale watching with an authorized guide. But we've already been acting like that for the past eight years. Besides that, um, we've also got the women. When we started out, the village told us if we want to do anything good for the environment, we need to focus on the women and the kids and the young men. It's been fantastic as the women have been making all of this art around nature. And so when we started out, the village has always been a makerly place. And now the women are making these beautiful nature themed handicrafts. And every year we have a spring fair and about 2000 people come and the women work all year to make these beautiful handicrafts. And it's this very big celebration uh, and the women will earn in a day what their husbands would have earned in a month from fishing, from selling these handicrafts. And they've made these beautiful murals. And they've also got these cooking classes. 
And as women are coming out of their houses more and more and are engaging and working and earning money, working with ecotourism, they're getting more empowered also, which is making them want to support their husbands and their kids and these sorts of things. And um, this winter, we're going to start bringing the women on the boats. So women, although it's a fishing village, most of them haven't been to sea. They're afraid of it. And so last year, we started taking a handful of women out to see whales, and that's going to make it so that the women have more opportunities. So maybe someday there can be female whale watch captains as well. Overall, their identity as a village has shifted toward feeling really proud that they're a nature place. So Barra de Potosí has long been a place where uh, Mexicans have known to go because it has a pretty beach that is next to a lagoon and so it doesn't have big waves. But now people know the names of their birds and they know the names of the turtles and they're not eating turtles and turtle eggs because they know that there's a stronger value in taking care of them and they understand their survival rates. And that's because they're their turtles. And so it's this stronger identity and connection with themselves as a nature village. And it really shows when you walk around the village today, going from the lack of the garbage and the art all the way down. It's a pretty different place than it was uh, when we started out. And with this next generation of kids bringing up the rear, and they're basically always in our office and helping us with our actual data entry and cleaning our gear and coming out on the boats with us and uh, wanting to do well in school so that they can go be scientists and have these neat lives that we get to have. It's been a real transformation. To wrap up, you know, if anyone's interested in learning how they can help with the rail research or with this tremendous community that you work with or plug in, you know, how can people learn more about what you do and, and help support it? So our project's called the Whales of Guerrero, and our website is whalesinmexico.com. And so you can always come to our website, whalesinmexico.com, and we send out a newsletter every month or so with what's going on and the opportunities to come out and do eco tours and follow the happy, good stories about the things that are happening in our village. We've just started planting mangroves, for example. And when we have eco tours coming up, that's one way to do it is to find out through our project. Um, other opportunities we've got, well, we love donations. And so anybody who can help to support us by making donations, or if we can do it through a whale adoption program and many other ways, that's all possible to find out about through our website, whalesinmexico.com. We've got a really fun Facebook page, and so that's a fun community to be a part of as well. And then, as Brad mentioned, we've got, we partner on some expeditions from time to time. And so it's a pretty wonderful experience to get to come down and spend a whole week or two with us and get to come out and study the animals and also get to know the people in the village and really take a deep dive into the incredible ecosystems that are around us in that area. So coming down and doing some ecotourism is a pretty incredible way to support the work because you're putting 
financial support into the hands of the locals. You're going to come away with a handful of really, really beautiful handicrafts that have been made by the locals and uh, bellies full of delicious food that you've created together and incredible memories. So coming down on an eco tour through the Whales of Guerrero and Sea Turtles partnership is a great way to go. And yeah, just staying in touch. And when we have opportunities, it's always up on our website and on our Facebook page. Well, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the invitation to talk about our work. So thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks so much to Katerina for joining us and to Nature's Path EnviroKids for their extraordinary support. If you haven't tried their new Turtle Splash cereal, go find it in the supermarket near you. Every box sold saves a baby sea turtle through our Billion Baby Turtles program. To learn more about our organization, visit seaturtles.org, S-E-E-Turtles.org. And again, please do us a big favor and take a minute to rate and review this podcast on Apple so we can reach more people. Stay safe out there, everybody. Mm-hmm.